We sit in hipster bars and discuss if we're poetic enough. We pet our neuroses till they curl up. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever the hell you are, my name is Ashley Marriston. This is Sarah Worley-Hill. And, and we, we are Demons and, and Dames. So this week I am really excited because we have a guest who is a fellow at UCL who's come on. This is Dr. Tom Packer, and he is a U.S. political historian. Ooh, but you know, you said you're excited we have a guest. Aren't you a bit sad that I'm not going to be in it? But you're here now. That's true. So I'm happy. <laughs> but not for long, folks. Um, I'm very excited to hear this too, Sarah. I get to enjoy this podcast as if I was just a normal listener instead of an intrinsic and very important part of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope everybody is going to enjoy this episode as much as I have. We're talking about Barbara Jordan who is a female senator from Texas and I think is a completely groundbreaking figure. In some ways, you could say she's almost the spiritual predecessor to Camilla Harris, who's just been nominated um, to be Joe Biden's running mate. So I think this is a really timely episode. Yeah. Dr. Tom Packer does a brilliant job. Um, he's as I said, a U.S. political historian who specializes in the U.S. South and the electoral history of the United States. He is currently also working on a book entitled Jesse Helms, The Rise of the Southern Republicanism and the End of the Old South, which is mostly about my home state, North Carolina. Oh, I also, um, it's Ruben's birthday. So I wanted to say happy birthday to Ruben from Storm the Palace. Go Ruben! I hear Hi, Ruben. listening to our podcast just so they can listen to the intro music. My, <laughs> my mum's one of them. <laughs> She says that listening to me just makes her feel anxious. Oh, no. Well, I'm super excited to listen to this, Sarah. It's exciting that we've got a real historian on our, our little history podcast. Can I say that? Plunge the dagger in further, darling. <laughs> so, Sarah, I imagine a lot of our listeners will be as confused as I am about uh, <laughs> what exactly our release schedule is at the moment. Obviously, 2020, it's a plague year. Um, a lot of plan. You could, we've planned the plan, but we haven't been able to plan the outcome, which is why we're now taking this sojourn into. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can we can plan the plan, but we can't plan the outcome, which is why we've taken a bit of a departure from our original format over the course of the summer, and we've not been releasing as regularly as we'd like to. I believe we do have a plan to uh, resume Demons and Dames business as usual at some point in the not so distant future. When is that? So until then, we've got a couple of interesting guest episodes, including this one where we've got various academics. Not not people who read a million books at university and have been largely subsisting on RuPaul's Drag Race ever since. I, I think that is our entire listenership, so yeah. <laughs> so we have some, yeah, some exciting stuff and we're trying to kind of have an episode a month for you guys in the interim. I think we're planning to relaunch season two the same time from last year on November the 5th. Remember, remember, the 5th of November, season two of Demons and James. In the meantime, we thank you for your patience. Please don't unsubscribe from us. Keep an eye out. We'll be occasionally popping up with far 
better educated, but um, <laughs> less uh, blonde people, presumably, um, in some cases, maybe. <laughs> we cannot wait to be back with you with normal episodes starting in the autumn. Well, have a good episode. There's a weather. Enjoy the episode. We sit in hipster bars and discuss if we're we pet our neuroses till they curl up. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. You are currently a fellow at the Institute of the Americas at UCL, mm-hmm. and I know you are a specialist in Southern political history, um, which is great because that's the area of the U.S. that I'm from. And you're also currently writing a book on Jesse Helms. Could you tell us a little bit about your book? So my book is based on my doctorate and it's on Jesse Helms and North Carolina politics and it has in it, as lots of books do it tries to make lots of points but perhaps the main one which I think is very relevant um, for Barbara Jordan is arguing he's less a sort of an exceptional southern figure and more part of a sort of mainstream American movement and that at least as a politician I think that's very helpful for thinking about Barbara Jordan um, and the sort of coming of national politics to the south. So we're going to be talking about Barbara Jordan today. Can you tell me a little bit about how you first kind of learned about her and came across her? I think one of the reasons I'm really interested in this is because, you know, having grown up and gone to school in the U.S., I never came across her in six or seven years of studying American history uh, within the U.S. curriculum. And I, I knowing about her life now, I think that is kind of a travesty. Yeah, I'm definitely up for the, the too many the U.S. Southern figures neglected. I will say you're clearly not from Texas because I think it would have been quite difficult to go to public school in Texas without hearing about her. I mean, I think the reason she gets a bit neglected is she wasn't the first African-American female, um, African-American congresswoman. She was the second. But actually, she's probably one of the most important, if not the most important, there's ever been. So much so, I'm not sure I entirely remember when I first known of her. But where I do think, I think she sometimes gets a bit neglected in broader histories. It's this great inspirational African-American feminist slash civil rights icon of the 60s and 70s. She was congresswoman from Texas from 72 to 78. And that was, that's all true. But actually, she's a bit broader and more complicated than that. And as we'll see quite a sort of savvy and often quite calculating politician. She's a bit more interesting than the kind of white marble kind of impression that's um, given of her when she is mentioned in history. Okay, well, I can't wait. That sounds really exciting. So before we kind of start talking about her and her life, can you tell me what historic or cultural context do we need to know to really understand her and her achievements? Uh, I think there's quite a few specific stuff that can come up as we talk about them. One is obviously... When she was born in Alabama in the early 20th century, very few black people could vote. There was massive segregation and institutionalized state discrimination. So she's very much part of the civil rights moment when African-American politicians start to rise and be important. She's also part of the story of the urbanization of Texas. One reason why she's the first black member of Congress from Houston is there weren't enough black people beforehand. Part Another was that they were somewhat disenfranchised, but just as important as there were very few of mm-hmm. them. So I think those are perhaps the key factors to remember about her. From, from your perspective as kind of a Southern political historian, 
what do you think are kind of the key changes that we're looking at in her early life through the civil rights movement from the 1930s through to when she kind of joins politics in the 1960s? For much of that period, I think the way one would put it, it's Jim Crow came this system of disenfranchisement, segregation, and black exclusion came under pressure, but then it collapsed. And then in the 60s, it truly collapsed. And I think this is something that's very important for understanding Barbara Jordan, is she grew up in a very segregated world. So she grew up in the fifth ward of Houston, it's the poorest African-American ward. Her father was a minister, his main role was as a religious minister, and Martin Luther King himself talked about how Sunday morning is the most segregated moment in American life. That, that was certainly true then. And so she grew up in a very African-American world right up until she reached university, where she went to a segregated university. Um, but then she started debating, which was in many ways her first proper contact with white people. So I think that's one thing that's very important for understanding her. And another is the differences as well. Disenfranchisement of African-Americans, particularly in Texas, actually, had been less true in cities than in rural areas. So it was less of a battle to win the vote in Houston than it was in, say, rural Mississippi, where it really was a battle. And also that one thinks of the mid-20th century South as completely dominated by conservative Democrats, old-fashioned, segregationist, rural. Now, even in Texas, there's quite a lot in that. But in where she was from, it was about less true than anywhere else in Texas. Uh, Harris County was Houston, as we probably all think of Houston. It was extremely fast-growing, extremely urban, filling up with migrants from all over the United States. And so when she enters politics in the 1960s, is developing its own different dynamic. And in a sense, it's becoming what a British audience might think of as very 1950s politics, class warfare. So the West End mm -hmm. of Houston, which is one of the richest areas of the United States by this point, is become rapidly very conservative and rapidly becoming super Republican. And the Republicans from the West End of Houston tend not to be moderate Republicans, but very conservative Republicans. And then the East um, End and the, um, and the inner city, very multi-ethnic, very African-American, increasingly Hispanic, poor, very democratic and liberal democratic. Mm -hmm. And that's how she got involved in politics. There was a developing liberal machine that was keen to bring in African-American voters. And so, for example, the judge, which is confusing, but in Texas, the, essentially the mayors are, uh, what, what, a role that's very similar to a mayor is often called um, judge. So the, so the judge okay. of the whole of the county had appointed her the first female African-American administrator. Um, and that's really where she gets going in politics, having campaigned for JFK in 1960. And it's as part of that liberal, the African-American sector of that liberal component of Harris County politics. So I have a couple questions in there, and I might be completely off base on this. Again, I don't think I've studied American history since, oh goodness, uh, 2001, maybe. But wasn't there a, a kind of like party shift around the civil rights movement where kind of historically in the South, you know, from... I, I guess the Civil War through to the Civil Rights Movement, it was primarily Democratic, and then the Democratic Party supported the desegregation, and there was uh, a lot of voters kind of shifted around that decision. Well, this is a very controversial area, and I'm quite much on the end of the literature on this. Okay. What I would say is um, it's entirely right in, in the mid-20th century the South was overwhelmingly Democratic. The white South, African-Americans, mostly, not entirely, but mostly couldn't vote. 
And then as mm-hmm. the last, since about 1950, there's been a continuous trend where the white South has become overwhelmingly Republican. And so now African-Americans vote more or less just as much white Americans, um, but the South has become massively Republican. It's the stronghold of the Republican okay. Party. So looking at Congress, it's gone from like 96% Democratic to about roughly 70% Republican, more at the Senate level. Senate level, it's getting close to 100%. Okay, so there has, there has been that shift. shift. I personally think you can exaggerate the role the civil rights mm-hmm. movement played in that. And I think there are a lot of other factors like the rise of the religious right. But in terms of Barbara Jordan, I think there's two important points to note. One is, which is that when she's making her way in politics, that shift is only beginning. And so Houston has a lot of Republicans, but Texas doesn't have that many. They might sometimes be willing to vote Republican for president, but actually that didn't happen at all between 1956 and 1972. But the state legislature, the congressional delegation, once you get outside Houston, they're very Democratic. So she was a figure from 66 in the state Senate, from 72 in the House, and the tex- mm-hmm. and Texas was overwhelmingly Democratic, but not necessarily liberal Democratic. There was a lot of variation. Some of them were quite liberal mm-hmm. and had very similar politics to Barbara Jordan. Others of them were very conservative. So there was a huge variation. And it's that white Democratic power structure and the divisions within it, which is crucial for her early career. Okay, brilliant. I guess my other question is, would she have grown up in a very political environment you think about her parents would they have been active in democratic party or is this something that she really developed on her own out of her own experiences and education i think that's a very interesting question which i knew wish i knew the answer better than i actually do i think her family were very much what you might call upwardly mobile middle class her father was a preacher so what um one of the things that gives her social cachet social capital is that she's extremely well-spoken. But it was a politics where very few African-Americans voted, and that's changing, but it's really only in the 60s that it really gets going. And obviously, you know, you need to vote to have political power, and particularly in a society as segregated as Houston and even more Texas in that period. So she, she said she didn't really have ambitions to be political growing up. Her father's view was she should be a music teacher because that's like a really good, respectable job for a woman. But she didn't want to do that and had a big fight with him when she was 12. Then she wanted to be a pharmacist, and then she decided she'd be a lawyer. So, you know, I think this is something really important for understanding Barbara Gard Jordan. She comes from this very supportive, strong background. She's also a very mm-hmm. determined lady who isn't doesn't wait for things to come to her. She goes for them. And in the early 60s, I think, she decided politics was the world for her. And in fact, she practiced very mm-hmm. little as a lawyer. She ended up becoming, as I said, she became an administrator. She became part of the liberal machine in Harris County politics. And then by 66, she's a state senator, which is a part-time role, but I don't think it really was for her. And by 72, she's in Congress. So, okay. so she's really quite young. I think she's somebody who almost who, who fell in love with politics as soon as she realized it was an option for her. But I don't think she was one of these little girls who grows up thinking to be president because it seems such an insane idea in the 40s and 50s that someone of her background could even be a member of Congress. Yes. And speaking of kind of the the challenges, can you talk a little bit about kind of the systematic and structural racism that she would have faced in her early life, especially in obtaining her education um, and later going to law school? I think one needs to differentiate between everything before law school and after law school. So... 
Texas had a very segregated education system, like almost all the South at this point. She would have been in all African-Americans with a great deal of subtle and not-so-subtle discrimination. She went to um, Texas Southern University, you know, that just did not have the resources. It didn't have the cachet of the University of Texas. I mean, they had sort of integrated the universities, but it was a bit nominal at this point. But I think one needs to be careful not to make it, um, and this is, I think, something that frustrated her in her life, the idea that because African-Americans were segregated and discriminated against, that meant they had nothing. Mm-hmm. Actually, there was a very strong community in the Fifth Ward of Houston where she grew up. There was very strong, respectable social institutions that she was part of. And, and so, you know, she really is educated. She goes to university and she runs straight for it. And I think this is perhaps bringing in the, one of the main themes of your podcast. But in some ways, I wouldn't. I think one might go so far as to say some of her barriers may as much be being female as being African-American. So she's a segregated university. She goes there. She does very well. She runs for president mm-hmm. of the um, student body, loses. Uh, in the end, she becomes head of the yearbook, which is probably, you know, I had not read anything on this, so this is speculation. I do wonder whether there may have been degree that the electorate, I African-American students were, do we really want such a forward woman running everything? And she was put in charge of the yearbook, which is perhaps the classic job that goes to people for being competent rather than being super popular. And the when she entered the integrated world was really through debating. She was a really good, very committed university debater. And that's perhaps a clue to some of the things we hear, we'll hear about her later. This is someone who's made her life arguing. I remember reading about things that she was really proud of in her life and and one of the things that came up from this this kind of early period is when she was debating the Harvard debate team and they drew yeah and she was like yeah can um can draw with Harvard you know they've won exactly and so for example Baylor University was a Baptist university but in Texas so it was segregated she integrated Mm -hmm. the debate team Um, they had a debate conference conference there and she integrated it. And then she won three years in a row. So, you know, it wasn't, oh, yes, isn't it wonderful? We're letting them debate. It's like, oh, she's won. Which also perhaps speaks to changing more than that. I may be being a bit unfair here, but if somehow, you know, you'd had a court judgment or something in the 1930s, I don't know whether Southern debate judges would have been willing to accept she'd won um, and would have been willing to go for her. Um, and they had to be in a segregated hotel. They had to be in a different, uh, they had to stay the night at a different place than all the other teams. But, you know, as one journalist reporting on her, said along the lines of it's perhaps few things more satisfying than beating everyone who aren't even allowed to be in a hotel with i i paraphrase but that's the beginning and i think that maybe sets the stage for her later in that she's always someone who's wary about just being labeled as an african-american or what they would have said then black figure she's always someone who wants the idea i'm just as good as the white boys I'm not just a woman. I'm not just black. I, if, uh, I'm just as good. And, you know, and she uses her race and sex in some ways as well. Do you think it was a motivating factor as well? The fact that these obstructions existed actually pushed her further than they might otherwise have. Potentially, though, I know, you know, obviously one wants to think about all the Barbara Jordans 40 years earlier and what they could have achieved. And instead, you know, they were running a dry cleaning business or something when they could have been making laws. But I have to say, my read of her personality, and, you know, uh, the people who know more about her than me, who I defer to on this, is just the kind of person who would want to go as far in what she was doing as she possibly could, whatever that was. You know, she just strikes me as one of these people who have these will of iron and are determined to succeed. Um, and as we'll see later, her body in the end betrays her on that. But she gets very yes. far. She gets very far before that. I think you can see that when you see her speak. 
because she does she does seem to have this sort of indomitable presence mm. and and as you said i think iron will that you can just it's very palpable so can you tell us what took her from starting to practice law at her kitchen table and i don't know if that's actually true if it's apocryphal to being elected for the texas senate yeah it's a remarkable achievement i'm not clear whether it's true either to be honest i suspect it is true and as I said earlier, she quite rapidly falls out of law, really. She, um, she's, mm-hmm. she's smart. She went to Boston College, which is a very good law school. She talked and she talked about how that made her think. That beforehand, she knew stuff. But at law school is when she learned to think. So she always perhaps has a slight, what you might call a liberal lawyer's approach to politics. But it's very rapidly politics becomes the first. And, and I think it's very important for understanding her, this dynamic, that you have this growing African-American presence looking around for leaders. And I think one thing that's underrated is the degree to which, compared to other groups in American society, political leadership has been provided by women. I think there's almost like that there's room for sort of interesting writing on the role of female leadership among African-Americans and where that comes from. I wonder if it's slightly related to the degree to which women speaking in African-American churches has long been a, a big thing. And certainly, if you hear her oratory, it certainly somewhat comes out of Black Baptist oratory. You can still hear the echoes of 19th century oratory when America actually had proper oratory in her voice. So she gets involved. She gets very keen on JFK. She's one of these people, young liberals, who fall in love with JFK politically. And she then is trying to make, make her path in Houston politics. And one key moment... It's probably in 1962 where the Africa, the, essentially the African-American group in Houston politics, they didn't call it that, but that's what it was, is deciding whether to endorse John Connolly for re-election. John Connolly is the governor of Texas, a close ally of Lyndon Johnson, and not really a liberal at all. It's not fully conservative, but not really a liberal. Not a segregationist, but very hostile to the civil rights, very wary of African-American political power. But he's enormously popular. So they're like, why do we re-endorse him for re-election and not piss him off? Um, and in the end, they go with that. Barbara Jordan is the one who stands up and says, no, no, we shouldn't be endorsing him. We should be endorsing his opponent, even if he doesn't have much of a hope. And that's sort of an interesting exception, because in a way, the rest of her, her political career isn't really like that. The rest of her political career has always been calculating and pragmatic. It's not standing mm-hmm. up to candidates who don't have a hope. And I wonder... If partly she learnt lessons, but also whether she was even being a bit calculating then that by becoming the liberal person, so this alliance between liberals and the African-American vote was so powerful in Houston politics, and by being the liberal um, voice in the African-American community, she had set herself very well up. And so she runs for school board. School board is for the whole area, so most of the voters Mm -hmm. are white, so she's not able to get the votes to win, but she mobilises the African-American vote very well. And then Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court comes in. And this may help explain one reason why voting rights was always a very big thing for her. The Supreme Court says state legislative districts have to be the same size. And Harris County had had huge population growth and not very many legislators. So it's hugely underrepresented in Texas. There are these tiny rural counties that are wildly overrepresented. And Harris County is wildly underrepresented. And it's partly, Mm -hmm. actually underrepresents the Republicans. So there are all these places teeming with hundreds of thousands of white Republican suburbanites who don't who are underrepresented. But there are also African Americans, poor liberal Democrats, who are also underrepresented. And so this creates a, ta- a, ta- a state Senate district and the not very large Texas Senate, which is basically mm-hmm. the African American areas of Houston is dominated by them. 
So that district might, by this point, might as well have Barbara Jordan written on it. She's the leading African-American political figure in um, Houston. So she's the one who's going to get that state Senate district. And she does. And so in 1966, she enters the state Senate as the first African-American since the 19th century. And also as the only woman. Every other member of the state Senate when she enters is a white man. And, you know, you could easily imagine a story where it's very, very difficult. Yes. And she becomes the voice of opposition and she becomes unpopular and she's this like radical voice in the wilderness. You don't have to imagine it because Curtis Graves gets elected to the Texas House, I'm fairly certain, the same year. And that's exactly what happens with him. He stands up, he's a militant, he argues, he um, denounces racism. Um, he, he's very unpopular in the Texas House as a whole. Um, very make an impact. Mm. Barbara Jordan wasn't like this at all. Barbara Jordan makes a huge point of getting on very well, not just with, and I think one needs to be careful about stereotypes of Texas. Like everywhere in the South, it's quite racially conservative at this point. But actually, there are mm. quite a few state senators who objectively are left of centre in the American political spectrum. They are, you know, they want to expand government, they want to increase regulation, they like labour. But there are also lots who are, might be Democrats, but are very conservative Democrats. And she makes a huge point of getting on fabulously with them as well. And in fact, she later, she would claim later in life that she always got on best with Southern members of Congress when she was in Congress, um, whether they were white or black on a personal level, that you know, she was Southern. And so culturally, they have more in common, which is an interesting perspective. And she's very much on the left-wing edge of the state Senate. She's pushing, but she doesn't focus massively on race. Um, her focus is very much on what you might call nuts and bolts social democracy. So extending the minimum wage to domestic servants, increasing regulation, very staunchly left of centre, one of the most liberal members of the state Senate, but not somebody who's being difficult. One the boys, someone mm-hmm. who goes along. And she also develops an, uh, other political careers. And I think one way of thinking about Barbara Jordan is she's the African-American female Lyndon Johnson. And Lyndon Johnson, who, of course, is by far the most powerful political figure in Texas, president of the United States, becomes a patron of her. Mm-hmm. She herself describes when she goes to an event with him, he invites, she gets invited to the White House and she gets this telegram. And she's, you know, and people say, well, you should go. And she shows the telegram and lets in. And then she goes to the event. She's never met him before. And he says, Barbara, what do you think at the event? <laughs> um, and Lyndon Johnson, I think, as president, not before, where he was associated with conservatives in Texas, she didn't have much time for, I think, in many ways, not always, represented her ideal of a politician. Someone who was trying to expand government, someone who was progressive, even down to the fact that the element of African-Americans' civil rights she's keenest on is voting rights, which is also the one LBJ was keenest on. One journalist describing it says, talks about his exercises de- decorous, restrained, impersonal, but effective, and suggests this is very much what Barbara Jordan believes in. And Lyndon Johnson becomes something of a patron of her or um, helping her with fundraising and helping her reach out. So she's already, though they get a bit disillusioned with her unwillingness to be a crusader, she's already very cosy with the liberals in Harris County. She's obviously a hero of African-Americans as their first black state senator. But she's also able to form deals with people who are a lot more ideologically conservative. And she also, and I suspect this is with an eye of statewide office someday, forming some cooperations with the industrial industries that define Texas, particularly oil. Lots of liberals are anti-oil. She's careful not to be anti-oil. She's left-wing, but you know, about, but she's pro-Texas. She's pro-oil. 
again, that's very yeah. much what Lyndon Johnson had been like. And I don't, I don't think one has to imagine he told her what to do this. I think she knew what she was doing already. But I certainly think he might have been an inspiration. While at the same time, one of the few people she gets on badly with in the state capital is John Connolly, who's still governor, who's in the position where he's slowly moving towards the Republican Party. And they fight backwards and forwards. But in 1968, she goes to the convention. Lyndon Johnson has already announced he's not going to run for president. And she's saying, why can't we, I'll support LBJ if he comes back. And perhaps the most striking aspect on this is the Vietnam War, where she was an early critic of the Vietnam War, but there's a debate over whether they should have a pretty, like the Vietnam War's a good thing in the Democratic National Convention. Uh, but, a, you know, we need to sort of stop it relatively soon. And she starts with the former, and she says, basically, it's loyalty. We've got to stand by LBJ. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that gives some idea of just how pro-LBJ she was and what an inspiration he was for her. So the Vietnam War actually started under Kennedy as a police action, is it, that correct? Yeah, uh, I mean, it depends how you define it. I mean, you could define it in the mid-50s, but yes. And then it's growing massively as a political factor in the late 60s. It's become increasingly contentious. Mm -hmm. Liberal Democrats are turning against it. Barbara Jordan was actually quite early to turn against it. But then by 68, the Democratic Party is polarised between the majority of Liberals who want to end it as soon as it's realistically possible, and then mm -hmm. the more conservative factions and some pro-war liberals like LBJ, who are, no, we've got to beat communism, we've got defeated. By the early 70s, very few Democrats disagree, and they've all, virtually all become anti-Vietnam War. It's a bit like what happens with the Iraq War um, 30 years later. But um, at this point, it's still very divisive. I think I've got, I've got two questions now. I think the first is, if you were going to look at her time in the Texas Senate, what do you think were kind of the key achievements that she would have been proud of? In that period i think one thing she was clearly very proud of was being regarded as one of the boys being regarded as a as a good texas state senator being chairman like one reason she's able to draw this is she's chairman of the redistricting committee she set a precedent that african-americans and to some degree this has been set for women already could be proper players in the texas state senate a bit different ideologically but fundamentally the same as everyone else and i think that was a real achievement but in terms of policy she also extended um, minimum wages to domestic workers. I think that extending the minimum wage to domestic workers would have been a massive victory uh, for women, especially. Mm. And in the House, she's very similar. She's very good at getting on with Southerners who had opposed every inch of the civil rights revolution. She's a staunch liberal. She's one of the most liberal three or four members of Congress from Texas. She's very much on the left of the political spectrum, but she's very careful not to be a difficult person. And again, she's also very, and, she, and I think with an eye on higher office, she's pro-Texas, she's pro-oil, is perhaps the most obvious thing. That, and that's um, one aspect of what she does there. So we've talked a little bit about the qualities that have kind of marked her out as a statesman and brought her success. And a lot of that has to do with her pragmatism, her oratory skills. And we've talked a little bit about race and how that's factored in and also her being a woman. But I don't think we've actually mentioned the fact that she's also gay which would have been quite a big deal if it had been known. And I guess I want to ask you how, how much that was a factor and if that's yeah. that's something that was just very much kind of in the closet, as it were. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean it's a difficult factor because I was looking this up and it's, it's widely said she was gay. And, like, that is actually my view as well. I mean, it's interesting because she does belong to, you know, fairly standard African-American church and... Uh, seems to take her faith seriously. So how much she was practising, so to speak, I don't think is that clear. I suspect she was, but not necessarily all the time. 
But yeah, it's definitely something that hangs over her um, politically. When she's running, one of the things at first, right, one of the things that gets spread about her is rumors that she's gay. Um, she at that point she has a companion who seems to be with her all the time, and her mm-hmm. campaign team say, you know, we're trying to run in an African American district in Houston. This is not. Um, and she said, don't worry. The lady is seen less of, and then vanishes quite quickly afterwards. And she actually yeah. is interesting writes in her memoirs about meeting Nancy Earl, who she spends the rest of her life with, saved her life yes. when she's very ill. And she actually mentions this in her memoirs, but she's very careful never to be out. Nancy Earl lives with her, but there's no discussion. I'm not even clear she particularly said this in private. So I think, in a sense, it's sort of an interesting moment in the history of sexuality. Arguably, the end of a long era where this was kind of true where if she'd been an open lesbian, she would have you know, been politically finished, but quite happily live with a woman and not say anything. She's basically okay about it. Like, she just doesn't say anything, doesn't declare anything. It's an sort of interesting way of managing that particular political problem. And Nancy Earl, interestingly, gets put on the payroll and worked. I suspect she was doing lots of help to Barbara Jordan, who's a white woman as well. Um, Nancy Earl. She gets put on the payroll in her last term in Congress when she's setting down and le- as we're going to be leaving politics. And I suspect it's interesting she was able to do that, but I suspect the reason why she got put on the payroll was at that point um, she was leaving politics so she didn't have to worry about it. Okay. Because they were together, I believe, from the late 1960s all the way through the end yeah, yeah. of so, like, nearly 30 life. years nearly 30 years and you know and you know there there she was obviously very close to her you know i mean it's the thing she didn't write about it except for a bit obliquely and you know when she writes about her in her memoirs she describes what she looks like which is perhaps an interesting part and they were obviously super close like much more of their relationships quite hard to read is the truth because they didn't talk about it and uh, neither of them even said they were lesbian Uh, Not just Barbara Jordan, Nancy Earl didn't say it either. And this is actually an interesting thing that happened. So um, I'm probably going to mangle her name. Mary Aoka in the 1980s is possibly the leading woman in the House of Representatives. And she gets in trouble for having various sexual partners on the payroll. Interestingly, she's devout Catholic and anti-abortion. So, you know, complicated (laughs) political figures, both of them. I think there's an interesting, uh, this is speculation, but... Let's assume, which is kind of my view, that they were in a lesbian relationship, at least most of that time. I wonder if it would have been harder for Barbara Jordan 15 or 20 years later, where it would have been a lot harder to stay in the closet, but it would still have been, possibly even today in African-American communities, but it would still have provoked a political backlash. I think there's a genuine way where it's easier to be a closet gay member of Congress in the 1960s and 70s than it was in the 2000s. No, I can completely see that. Do you think as well her being female and the fact that they were both women uh, rather than both being men made it slightly easier in the cultural context of the 1960s and 70s as well? I think that probably is true. Uh, I'm not even sure Texas has an anti-sodomy law into the 21st century. I don't think it applied to women, actually. So I think the obvious point to bring up, this is criminal, I don't think would have applied in her case. I might be wrong on that. The mm-hmm. anti-sodomy laws vary. I also think, bluntly, one of the advantages of being a female con- politician is they aren't assumed to be trying to have sex <laughs> all the time. So I think that is also potentially an advantage. That if she'd been a male politician living with a male aide, 
it would have raised a lot more eyebrows and there would have been a lot more overwhelming assumption that you know what's going on. And I think, you know, I think it's fits in with Barbara Jordan. She's she's very careful not to be pigeonholed as the black woman and she's been really careful not to be pigeonholed as the gay, as the lesbian black woman. But she's also somebody who's willing to use race and sex very subtly for advantage. And that's maybe an example of that. Um, so she was the first woman ever to be elected in her own right to represent Texas in the House of Representatives. Yes. Is uh, that correct? Yeah. Uh, well, I think in her own right is a bit like perhaps a bit harsh. She was the only one who wasn't a close relative, I think in every case, widow of a former member of Congress. Um, it's actually, Texas is quite interesting in this respect because Texas has the second ever female governor in the 1920s, but she was largely running as a proxy for her husband who um, had been banned from holding any state office um, because he'd been impeached. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, so Barbara Jordan is the first one who, ha- who is not part of a politically connected family, who's there in her own right. She's the first African-American ever to represent Texas in Congress, first African-American in the Confederacy in the 20th century. There have been plenty before the 20th century. Uh, then they got different wow. rights. She is the first African-American woman to represent the South. So, yeah, she's a lot of firsts. She's only the second ever African-American woman congressman. But actually, some of these other distinctions are maybe um, every bit as important. So, in a sense, she's very new. But, yeah, she fits in. There are quite a few liberal Democrats in the Texas in the Texas delegation. Obviously, you know, the rest of the House matters a lot as well. She gets on good committees. She's a liberal, but a loyalist to the House leadership. Like, the House leadership's pretty liberal at this point, so that's a lot mm. less difficult than it would be in Texas. She's a skilled, solidly liberal, but not quisiotic operator within the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. And that helps explain why she's on the Judiciary Committee. She's a lawyer. She's concerned with voting rights. I think she is concerned with civil rights, even though she's careful not to get stampled as a civil rights figure. And that, of course, becomes very important, but uh, it's probably her biggest claim to fame, not necessarily her biggest claim to importance, but her biggest claim to fame is, is she's on the House Judiciary Committee when they impeach a president of the United States. Yeah, and this is a speech that I'm going to play a couple of mm. clips from now. Earlier today, we heard the beginning of the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. We the people. It's a very eloquent beginning. But when that document was completed on the 17th of September in 1787, I was not included in that we the people. I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. But through the process of amendment, interpretation and court decision, I have finally been included in We the People. Today, I am an inquisitor, and hyperbole would not be fictional and would not overstate the solemnness that I feel right now. My faith in the Constitution is whole, it is complete, it is total, and I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. Who can so properly be the inquisitors for the nation as the representatives of the nation themselves? The subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men. And that's what we're talking about. In other words, 
from the abuse or violation of some public trust. It is wrong, I suggest, it is a misreading of the Constitution for any member here to assert that for a member to vote for an article of impeachment means that that member must be convinced that the president should be removed from office. The Constitution doesn't say that. The powers relating to impeachment are an essential check in the hands of the body, the legislature, against and upon the encroachments of the executive. The division between the two branches of the legislature, the House and the Senate, assigning to the one the right to accuse and to the other the right to judge. The framers of this Constitution were very astute. They did not make the accusers and the judges and the judges the same person. We know the nature of impeachment. We've been talking about it a while now. It is chiefly designed for the president and his high ministers to somehow be called into account. It is designed to bridle the executive if he engages in excesses. It is designed as a method of national inquest into the conduct of public men. The framers confided in the Congress the power, if need be, to remove the president in order to strike a delicate balance between a president swollen with power and grown tyrannical and preservation of the independence of the executive. She really does talk to the fact that, you know, in the Constitution, she is such a, a strong idealization of what the constitution means and what it should uphold but at the same time is really clear to point out that when this constitution was written it didn't represent her as an african-american woman and she talks about kind of the evolution the political evolution and the judicial evolution of the constitution as a living document and the importance of it and i i i think in it she's speaking for i think it's 13 minutes and 51 seconds not to be exact, but it just, she does such an amazing job of explaining in those 13 minutes why the Constitution is so fundamental to the entire American political system in a way that is more eloquent than I've ever heard anyone talk about it ever. I, I mean, like, she's got a fantastic voice. Like, I could listen to that all day, really. If somebody says it's like, you know, it sounds like God has suddenly spoken, and you can sort of see it in those cadences. I think it becomes this massive moment that really makes her a massive national celebrity. Um, and it's why there are books on her. It's why, not in your school, clearly, but in Texas, it's probably a big reason why she's still taught today. At the risk of being a party pooper, I wouldn't exaggerate the impact of that, because you know, impeachment is a political factor, and like all political factors, we've had an impeachment recently, so we know this, the people who really matter are the swing voters. And Barbara Jordan was a liberal African-American Democrat who represented the district, which Nixon had lost by a landslide, even while he won nationally by a landslide. So she, people like Walter Flowers, who's a conservative white Alabaman Democrat who ends up supporting, are much more important for helping to bring Nixon down because they're the swing voters. But I do think where Barbara Jordan plays a helpful role is in pushing the idea that actually this isn't about what you think of Richard Nixon. This is about what you think of what he's done. 
and been quite yes. savvy, including in that speech. She could have easily given a tirade about how, you know, this is the same Nixon who's done Vietnam War, and this is the same Nixon who's been fighting busing and attacking black militants. Who is this man? And that would definitely have backfired if your point of view was to get rid of Richard Nixon. And in fact, she isn't the only African-American on the Judiciary Committee, though people seem to forget this. Charlie Rangel, who's another very distinguished African-American, um, been elected, I think, the uh, two years before her, is on it. And he says they have a conversation before the hearings, and he's like, I know he's guilty, I'm voting. And she's like, you can't do that. You have to actually listen to the evidence. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, So, you know, I, I, I think, again, it's very Barbara Jordan, very sonorous, very brilliant speech. You know, not necessarily changing the world, but being very savvy about putting her argument in a way that's going to work. Not going down some liberal cul-de-sac, but still working to get rid of Nixon. And it certainly made her own career. Yeah, oh, as a celebrity. I mean, she had a pretty good career already, but it's what makes her a big <laughs> political fair. figure. It's what people, it's why in 1976 she's talked of as being on the Democratic, uh, maybe she'll be vice president. It's why there's talk she might be on the Supreme Court, I think. It's like what she's remembered for. That leads us really well into the question of what is the most important things that she was able to achieve in her time in the House of Representatives? Now, this is always a very difficult question. So members of Congress have a very bad history of being elected for president, and this is part of the reason why. If you're a governor, you could say, I've cut taxes or I've raised taxes or I did X. If you're, if you're a president, you could say things like that. If you're a member of Congress, every member, you, you know, you've got to get 220 members of Congress to pass the bill. You know, who's actually responsible? So it's a difficult balance. But I think where people would give her the most credit, and I think some deserved credit, is in the effects of the Voting Rights Act. So the Voting Rights Act is perhaps the most important civil rights act. It enfranchised African-Americans very successfully in areas where, like, like some degree Texas, but even more places like Mississippi and Alabama, where it's almost impossible to vote mm -hmm. if you're black. So it's the most unambiguously successful. And it's being renewed, and it's going to be renewed. It's become very consensual, partly because lots of politicians who've been very against African-American rights suddenly think there's more in it once they've got African-Americans voting for them. So in a sense, it's a beneficiary of its own success. But there is a question of what's going to happen to it, um, because it's not always uncontentious. So there are... Aspects such as southern jurisdictions have to get permission if they want to change where a polling station is, and districts in New York, interestingly. And the African American civil rights machine, as though the civil rights organizations like the NAACP, are very wary. They're like, we want to just keep this act. It's a great act. We don't want to fiddle around with it. And this is interesting. Barbara Jordan, pragmatic Barbara Jordan, is actually, no, let's extend this. We don't have to just be satisfied with what we've got. We can push on it. Mm -hmm. And in particular, what they do um, is they, they expand it to include national origin, language, aspects like that. And the practical effect is that areas with lots of non-English speaking immigrants have to make allowances for them. So have to produce bilingual ballots. In a sense, it's the kind of bit of the Voting Rights Act lots of people would still oppose today. And it's hugely important in Texas, which has a massive and fast growing Latin American population, Mexican American mostly. It's a very important move for Texas. I think in some ways it's like complete Barbara Jordan. It's well calculated. She succeeds. It's um, ideally, you know, it represents down the line, left liberal, clear commitment. And it also helps her side because obviously it's a law that uh, makes it easier if you're a Spanish-American who doesn't speak English very well to vote. 
and therefore increases the strength for the liberal side in Texas politics, which is where she comes from. So I think mm-hmm. much more than the Judiciary Committee, though, than the Watergate, though I think also this not only is perhaps her most important achievement, is the one that really sums her up as a politician. I think another really sort of seminal point is in 1976 when she gives the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention. This speech is a point that doesn't have much national significance, I think, and if we're looking at terms of the history of politics or what was achieved, but I think if we're looking in terms of her career and her life, this is really a seminal moment. Yeah, yeah I mean, and again, it's amazing. Like, you can listen to it all day, really, and I think that's what the convention wanted to do. I actually think if her Watergate speech is a bit overrated for historical impact, I think this is perhaps a bit underrated, because what she does is the other speaker, I think, just before her, just after her, or just before her, is John Glenn, who's an amazing American mm-hmm. hero, first man in first American in space, gets punched in the eighties and just like walks off. Senator for Ohio, hugely popular, um, has an amazing electoral record. Bit on the moderate end of the Democratic Party, like a liberal, but a moderate liberal, the kind of liberal who thinks mm-hmm. Carter isn't tough enough on the Soviets. And she just completely overshadows him. I think partly she's giving what um, more the delegates who are mostly very solidly liberal Democrats want to hear, but also, frankly, she's just a much better speaker. And and he's he has many good qualities, but one of them is not uh, being a great orator is not one of them. And that argument is quite important because she overshadows him so badly. It undermines a bit the idea of him as the great next great democratic hope. And, you know, when he runs for president 84, he flops. I wouldn't just draw a line and say that's Barbara Jordan's work. But I definitely think she didn't help him and not by attacking him at all, just by overshadowing him. So that's actually mm-hmm. one of the sort of subtle ways these keynotes do actually matter. Again, she's very careful to try and wrap it up in a consensual way. And I think it's actually quite interesting, and I'm not sure what happened today, the way she's so unambiguous about embracing the history of the Democratic Party. You know, we're the party of the people. We were the party of immigrants from the 19th century. You know, the same party of immigrants was also the same party. There's one reason it was the party of immigrants that wanted to stop African-Americans voting. Obviously, it's a Democratic speech, so she doesn't say that. But I think, again, you know, she has no shame. She's perfectly... Um, I don't mean this pejoratively. I don't think she feels any shame. She's quite happy. You know, the Democrats are a great party, always been quite happy to embrace Southern. She's not someone who throws out her liberal principles, but she's very much someone who doesn't want to be difficult about them and wants to put it in a very consensual, we are the people way. And, you know, the delegates absolutely lap it up that actually we are the party of the common good. Um, It's a very, very well-crafted speech. From what you've said just there... Do you think that she is then instrumental in kind of creating the new identity of the Democratic Party at this period of time? I I think that would be going a bit far, but I I think she is one of many figures who play a very good role in kind of almost rushing over the history of the Democratic Party. And actually, you know, Andrew Jackson, the New Deal and the Civil Rights Revolution all have lots of issues with each other. But yes. actually, it's all a continuous story. We are representing the people. And she's not the one, only one. She's not the mm-hmm. most important, but she certainly does a very good job of it. So in 1976, the same year that she gave this keynote, she was also, you know, it was circulated. There were wide rumors that she was a potential running mate for Jimmy Carter. Uh, why don't you think she received the nomination? I mean, I think the honest truth is it would have been amazing if she had. And I think it really reflects what a big political figure she's become 
and what celebrity that she's even in the mix that people are talking about her. But by this point, if you want to put black woman on the ticket, she's the person. But I think it would have been very unusual in that situation. There had only been one African-American senator elected in the 20th century. And that was from Massachusetts, which is the only state that hadn't gone for Richard Nixon. Uh, it would have been a massive risk. And Jimmy Carter, who's on the right of the Democratic Party, he's a southerner. He probably wants a non-southerner. He's very much in a situation where he is trying to bring on the Democratic establishment. And he's someone who wants to bring in somebody who's seen as an old Washington hand. Now, Barbara Jordan arguably is a bit of a, not old, because only since 72, but yeah, as an African-American voice of impeaching Richard Nixon, she's not seen as that. And she is not on his final shortlist, which are all senators. And I think at that point, it would have been seen as very high risk to put a woman on a ticket and hugely high risk to put an African-American on the ticket. So there's an interesting letter in 1980 for Ronald Reagan who actually is much more in a position where putting something like a woman to make himself look more cuddly and liberal would have made sense. And he'd mm -hmm. write him and say, why aren't you putting a woman on the ticket? Um, yeah, you know, everyone's accusing you of being a sexist. This is the obvious way to rebut it. And he's like, yeah, it's sad, but we've done polling and the polls say that people aren't ready for a woman president. And I, he says, I don't understand this because I'm a huge fan of Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister of Great Britain. So, you know, I don't agree with this at all. And I'm sure Jimmy, now Jimmy Carter's line was he just wanted the best person to be president if he died and the best person to be vice president. Mondale was that guy. I, I mean, at risk of being a bit cynical about Mr. Carter, I think that's an exaggeration. I think he was looking for the person who would fit politically, would reassure the Democrats and not frighten the horses. And I think Barbara Jordan would have been a very compelling vice president, but she's not who you're running if you're trying not to frighten the horses. Interestingly, I think if somebody who had been genuinely very conservative had somehow won the Democratic nomination, like George Wallace, who's the voice of historic segregation, who'd been the runner-up four years before, I wonder if they might have offered Barbara Jordan the ticket, and I wonder what she would have said to them. But that was always very unlikely. And mm -hmm. I think it was very unlikely that a Liberal Democrat in that era was going to risk having an African-American woman on the ticket. Yeah. It, nowadays, it'd probably be a plus, and I think there's a good chance Joe Biden will pick exactly that. But, you know... That, that was the nature of politics in the 70s. The glass ceiling for African-American women had risen, but it hadn't gone. Three years later, she officially retires from politics, although she is involved later. Do you know what prompted her retirement? I, I mean, she's a very secretive person, and there's talks that maybe she was worried about uh, sex life being exposed, but I think it's fairly clear it's because she got ill. Like, she just said, oh, I have a bad mm -hmm. knee, but it's pretty clear she had multiple sclerosis. It's very clear. She had multiple sclerosis, so she gets very sick. I think my view is she was looking towards statewide office. Could a liberal be elected in Texas? But the illness then cacks it. So in a way, it's very sad. She's had this glowing career. But, you know, we are all, you know, it's quite old-fashioned to say this, but we're all made of dust fundamentally. It's not her mind that causes her any problems, but her body gives out on her. And so she retires and switches to teaching. And she's a brilliant teacher. So she spends the next 10 years or so teaching. At university, I, I should add. And she's a hugely popular teacher. Like, no doubt her profile meant she would have been anyway. But all the evidence is that she was, like, an extremely good, inspiring teacher as well. As someone who teaches, I think that's very worthwhile. <laughs> I would agree. So Jordan was actually appointed 
the Lyndon B. Johnson Chair at the National Policy at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin. And she taught there until the early 1990s. She lectured kind of widely across the country on national affairs. And also what I found is that she delivered two more um, speeches at the Democrat National Convention, both in 1988 and then also in 1992. Yeah, she's very much, very much favoured that keynote sort of lives forever, so to speak. Um, and she's very much, I mean, I might draw a slight um, broader lesson, which is African, you know, America in some ways is a very segregated society. And so there really is a school of African-American oratory with deep roots in the African-American church, which is genuinely different. And to be blunt, I think it is just superior. And so I think there is a general tendency for African-American orators at democratic conventions to be particularly good. I don't think it's a coincidence Barack Obama really launched on the public stage giving a speech at one of the key speeches at the democratic convention. While Barbara Jordan's oratory, she should get full credit herself, she's also part of a broader cultural context of where it mm-hmm. keeps the great 19th century American tradition of truly amazing oratory alive in its slightly weakened current state. Just listening to her speeches, and you mentioned Margaret Thatcher, I know Margaret Thatcher actually taught herself to speak on a lower register mm. that women don't normally speak on mm. to make her sound, have more authority in her voice. And I think when you're listening to Barbara Jordan, she she has a very deep bass resonating voice and way of speaking. I think she actually referred to her as her voice of God voice. And and so it's interesting that if you were listening to her, it it she doesn't have a the voice that it, that women tip typically do and she does speak on a lower register as well and i think it's just an interesting parallel to draw yeah no absolutely um, um and i think i i think i think that's bang on i don't think it's tangent at all i think it's exactly correct and actually while i actually listened to her interviews and she does have a deeper voice than, than most women do but at the same time i do think she's deliberately in a sense putting it on I, I, that, that's an unfair way of putting it but she does have a speech voice and she does sound to me like she has significantly lower voice when she's giving a speech than when she's giving an a, um, interview for the Lyndon Johnson Library. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I completely agree. I, I think your point's a very strong one. And also um, the African-American oratory, that doesn't mean individual brilliance isn't part of it because that's definitely the story. And I think it was few, if she was going to be forced to retire by illness, there were a few more appropriate jobs and teaching at Lyndon B. Johnson School of Government, as we've discussed. She's a huge fan of him. She's in some ways his liberal heir. And she was a very inspiring, uh, brilliant person. So if she was too ill to be a politician, or I wonder to what degree she just didn't want to show weakness as a politician by being ill. She's never someone who likes showing weakness. I understand that in her 1992 keynote address at the Democratic National Convention, she actually did give the speech in a wheelchair. Mm. And that that was quite a big, would have been a very difficult moment for her. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that varied. And that's the point where, you know, I think this often happens with people as they get ill. They sort of try and keep it up. And then at some point they can't do so. And, you know, there's also changing cultural morals. There's the growth of the disability rights movement and so forth. But, you know, I think she didn't mm-hmm. like showing weakness. But, you know, um, by that point she had to be in a wheelchair. So there wasn't a, there wasn't oh. a choice. 
1992, this is also when it was, uh, she was a potential candidate for the Supreme Court under Clinton, is that correct? Uh, yes, after he was elected. he Bill Clinton certainly emphasizes, oh, I so wanted to appoint her. I wished I could have appointed her. But I was just basically, he was basically worried she was ill and she would die. Ironically, she would then have died while he was still president. So he probably got to appoint his successor. So there would have been a Republican Senate, which, as we know, can be problematic for, um, if you, if for presidents if they have a different party Senate and they're nominating. But, you know, I think if he'd had an unlimited choice, he wouldn't have might, he would have wanted her on the Supreme Court. And I think it's conceivable he or another Democrat would have nominated her if she hadn't been ill. But as we know, mm-hmm. huge element of the Supreme Court is will people survive? And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who he appointed instead over, you know, over 20 years after Barbara Jordan had died, who I think is actually, if not the same age, actually slightly older than Barbara Jordan, is still going. I do wonder how she would have been on the Supreme Court. Like, she'd probably have been a fairly conventional liberal, but there are hints in some of her talks that she might be a bit different than that. So, for example, in an interview with Ms. Magazine, the feminist woman's magazine, she's talked about abortion. She's very clear that she's pro-choice. And at the same time, she starts talking about compromise. Um, and that mm-hmm. You need to have compromise to solve political issues. So... I do wonder if she may have been a member of the Supreme Court who was a bit wary about striking down laws just because she thought they were bad or against the spirit of the law. That's very speculative. I imagine she would have been a more conventional liberal judge. But there are hints in her corpus that she might have been a bit more careful about pushing down laws just because she thought they were bad, which would have made her an interesting member of the Supreme Court, but possibly a rather more frustrating one than Ruth Bader Ginsburg for the people appointing her if she had been. But obviously that's very speculative. Interesting what if, if she hadn't got cancer, if Jimmy Carter had been re-elected or Ted Kennedy being elected president, might she have ended up in the Supreme Court? But obviously that's not the world we live in. Unfortunately not. (laughs) Um, So I think that brings us to 1994 and the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform. Yeah, this is one of these fascinating what-if moments in American history, where if if I'm going to sensationalise it, I'd say if Barbara Jordan had had her way, President Trump would in no way have come into existence. Oh, wow, that's quite a big what-if. Barbara Jordan chairs a commission on immigration. I mean, it's been continuing interestingly, mm-hmm. which shows how the immigration issue in the 90s is more complicated politically than perhaps it is today. Her predecessor was, yes. was Cardinal Law, who's the, essentially the most important Catholic clergyman in the United States, generally regarded as a conservative, not least because his number one political issue is opposition to abortion. But he was actually a lot more supportive of high levels of immigration than Barbara Jordan, liberal African-American congresswoman. And she chairs this commission. Uh, Annoyingly, I haven't read that. I haven't been able to find that much on its internal deliberations, but it's quite consensual. Only one member of the commission ends up dissenting. So she very much agreed with it. It gets completely finalised after she dies, but there's no way it wouldn't have... Um, be more or less the same. So my understanding of the commission is that it was very much, it was a mixed party mm-hmm. and a lot of Democrats, like, as you said, are at that period of time, some of them would have been pro-immigration. Some of them would have been very anti-immigration. You also have Republicans who are pro-business mm-hmm. who are pro-immigration because the businesses, you know, especially relying on kind of migrant labor, are relying on immigration and so she's kind of she does this amazing job of balancing all of these different things and i think you see the pragmatic politician really coming out that she's able to get any consensus 
against this incredible mixed political background. I, I think you're right in saying this. The proposal is very much a compromise. And she's very strong on you can't fiddle around with birthright citizenship. So that's the situation where in America at the moment, anyone born in the United States is a citizen. She's also critical, and it actually gets quite quickly repealed, on the restrictions on benefits for legal migrants. And she wants to make it easier for people to bring their spouses over. But there is also a restrictionist element to it. So it also includes cutting heavily extended family migration, so people bringing their siblings over. Mm -hmm. She's very sceptical of low-skilled migration, which is, of course, most of the migration. And it also includes having a register of all legal migrants, so that people, so to make sure, to add, and enforcement mechanisms, so illegal migrants can't get hired, which would then, which mm -hmm. would, if, if successfully implemented, um, it would have had a lot of problems in the courts, would have dried up. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. I think a majority, certainly a very high percentage of American migration over the last 25 years. And if it had been implemented, I think that would definitely have stopped President Trump. Like all the evidence is for unprecedentedly high levels of migration that happened in the late 20th, early 21st century are actually crucial for President Trump winning both the primary and the general election. And there's actually an interesting parallel with Hillary Clinton here, who gave an interview a while back, who I think has a lot in common with Barbara Jordan, a lot of differences, but a lot in common, saying, you know, we should be essentially saying we should be care we, we should be doing something about immigration so that the radical right doesn't win elections. Um, and I think this is something which yeah. might have made a difference if she'd lived, because there was fair amount of support and a fair amount of opposition in Congress at this point. She then gets replaced by a um, very distinguished federal judge, Shirley Halstrader, after she dies, but who doesn't have the same huge celebrity Barbara Jordan had. So if Pre Bill, so President Clinton, for example, completely drops the siblings idea, the idea of restrictions for extended yeah. family. Allegedly, I don't know how true this is, um, because of China, he's worried about Chinese donors. But anyway, whatever the cause, that's a very important moment. Um, I, I suspect there's also an ideological element. that, And I do think there is a genuine what if, that if she lived for four or five more years and really pushed this commission, that might have pushed it enough, the agenda, that it, like welfare reform, it would have ended up happening. And then I think the subsequent history of the United States the last quarter of a century would have been significantly different because that would have massively depolarized and deprioritized immigration as an issue. And it would also have had a huge effect on the composition of the United States. In a sense, it's like this... Her last political thing is, in a sense, a failure. Very little of it gets implemented. But it's a very interesting failure, and it's arguably a failure because she, she died. I think it also speaks something, given we're getting towards the end of her life here, to her role as a politician, which is she's a progressive, she's a liberal, but she's also a pragmatist. And also her liberalism is a lot of the sort of lunch-pale, defending African-American position liberalism. It's ideological, mm -hmm. but it's not hyper-ideological. And it's not what, it, it, like, the way I put it is it's not a graduate student's kind of liberalism. And I think you can see that in some of her views on immigration, that there's this less progressive side to her. And I think you can see that on um, um, when it came to the Immigration Commission. I, I think that kind of brings us to my second to last question, which is what do you think she would have said about American politics today? <laughs> I like I, this is an easy thing to say, but uh, I expect you to say, "Am I hallucinating?" But um, uh, I have a lot of figures. I'm very boring political perspective, but I, I mean, this is guesswork, but I reckon we would have been what one would call a Joe Biden liberal. So you know, we need to continue expanding government. 
We um, wanted mm-hmm. to push the progressive cause, but at the same time, you know, she was someone who said that her heart felt a flutter when she heard the stars. I still hear a flutter when I hear the stars spangled ba- banner. And, you know, the very segregated life she lived up to her university years was also a very patriotic life. It's easy to forget that. And I think she would have been mm-hmm. sort of pro-progressivism, but very wary about it moving away from the idea America is a good place. And potentially, as we were just yeah. discussing, wary of some of the issue positions that they may cause a lot more problems than they solve. So... Um, that's mm-hmm. where I guess she would be now. She would be, you know, Joe Biden should win. We need, I, I want more progressive government. It's actually interesting when you read her debates in the 80s. She's like, well, I think we were going too far in the 70s in expanding government. Now President Reagan's mm-hmm. going too far the other way. But there's an in-between position. I think she would be broadly for progressive and expanding the welfare state. And I would reckon she would be in favour of gay rights. I think that you can't just reduce that to her personal life. I think that would have been ideological for her. But I think she would be wary mm-hmm. about some of the more radical sides that one's seeing at the moment and very wary about pushing it too far and getting backlash. Um, it's very interesting. Like in the 60s, okay. she didn't go on a single demonstration, as far as I can tell. Like she was very much the wing of the civil rights um, movement that was working through courts, lawyers, voting. And I think that's very much where she would be today. As you know, the title of this podcast is Demons and Dames. And we speak a lot about how these powerful female figures were demonized during their lifetime. And it's interesting because that's not something I've actually come across when I've been doing research on Barbara Jordan. But was there kind of this this backlash against her as being black, as being a woman that was used in her campaigns? I, I would give sort of three answers to that. One is that her campaigns were overwhelmingly in the African, like in terms of winning elections, were African-American areas after the early 60s, where bear in mind, well, she had a white majority electorate, she, could, she didn't win. Uh, it's only once she started swinging to running in these black majority districts she won. And so the only thing that really came up was there was quite a bit of whispering on the gay rumours, but you know, she dealt with them by just like not feeding them. So I, I think that's a partial answer. I think though the thought of Barbara Jordan would have been very scary to a very large number of people. Um, liberal African-American woman from this, representing this new source of black power. And I think while staying very centre-left ideologically, I think she was always very careful not to feed them, to you know, argue in terms of the general good, the long history of the Democratic Party, the glories of the Constitution, the glories of America. And, you know, if she'd been mm-hmm. president, I'm sure like all presidents, millions of people would have hated her. But I think, actually, <laughs> you can easily be wildly unpopular and be as prominent as she was. And I think it represents the skill, has political skill, and also the strength of her method that she managed to inspire so many people without becoming a demon figure. And my final question is, if she had one message from her life and work that she'd want us to kind of carry with us, what do you think that would be? I'd say work hard. And don't alienate people unnecessarily or don't piss people off to be English about it. I think if you look at how she behaved, that's the core thing. Like, go for what you want, keep keep struggling at it, but don't unnecessarily create divisions when you don't need them. I think that would be a good summary of her political approach. And I very much think that's what how she believed people should operate. Oh, thank you so much, Tom. It has been an absolute delight having you as a guest. 
is there any last thoughts or words you want to share with us and is there anything you'd like to plug not currently no though um when the book is done please try and get it into an academic library of your choice on jesse helms and um north carolina politics i'd also like to say i very much enjoy being on this podcast and i think she's a very interesting political figure who is far too neglected compared to other somewhat similar political figures oh thank you so much we sit in coffee shops and discuss we speak of our men folk, then we give up. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Demons and Dames. We will respectfully encourage you to rate us, to review us, and to recommend us to your friends. And enemies. It might make you like them a bit better. <laughs> you can follow us on Instagram at Demons Dames Pod, on Twitter at Dames Demons. Or you can get in touch with us via Facebook or demonsanddames at gmail.com. Bye. Bye. He says that he loves her, but never does anything for her that she couldn't order online. So baby, come over, I'll sit on the sofa, and pull off of our eyes. Let's go for